Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Uh, one more time maybe before you hear a show from Hot Springs. Uh, that'll probably be Monday's show. will be from uh, Arlington as well. Uh, but today is episode, what is it, episode 643. It's a Friday, so it's going to be a listener call show. I have a few less calls than normal because uh, of a computer switch over and getting onto the uh, the new office with uh, all the equipment. But uh, and we're down to the laptop and all, all the good things like that, so hence the audio being a little bit different. But uh, we will uh, we will catch up those guys of you those of you guys who've called in maybe in the last week or two uh, with the show next week. So don't sweat that. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, the way you do it is you pick up your phone and you mash some numbers. The numbers you mash are eight six six. Six five think that's eight six 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 five t h i n k. Leave your message. You get about two minutes to do that and uh, make it like what you hear today. And odds are you'll be on the show within a week or two. I'd like to remind you the ways to ensure you will not get on the show are to call in while riding on the back of a motorcycle, operating a weed eater or a chainsaw, or whatever it is some of you folks do when you make calls into me. Um, if I can't hear you, if the audience can't hear you, I can't use your call. Even if I kind of get it, and I sort of know what you're asking, if the audio quality is, hey, Jack, can't do it. Got the point. All right, so um, let's go ahead and... Uh, Take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Knife Kits. You guys, you know why I love Knife Kits. I love Knife Kits because I like to make knives, but I'm not real good at it. I'm, I'm kind of a new guy to making knives. And um, I've got a couple kits from them. And it's so super easy. Uh, if you can do basic tool work, if you know, if you do f- final fit and finish and, and stuff like that and you know how to sharpen, I mean, that's about as much as you need to do, uh, to be able to put together one of their, you know, kind of Prius, you know, kind of, uh, starter kits, I guess you would say. Uh, something that's more analogous to a, you know, snap together model you might have done when you were a kid. But if you are a custom master bladesmith, you can get all the raw materials you need to do your custom knife work. You can even get really exotic things like mammoth tusks for handle material. Uh, before I heard of knife kits, I didn't know that you could go get mammoth tusk anywhere. I didn't know that was possible. Apparently it is. There's 1,300 plus items available and a cool free catalog. Check out knifekits.com where you can build the best. Next up today is Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, I'll tell you what, Sawtooth Tactical has all the stuff that you need to, to live that tactical lifestyle. Um, and I'll tell you what, the other thing is when you're checking out, if you mention that you found them on TSP, they'll throw something extra in there for you. And what are you going to find at Sawtooth Tactical? Like I said, everything for the tactical lifestyle, but cool stuff, Maxpedition bags, Magpole magazines, and everything in between. Check out Sawtooth Tactical today. I also want to remind you guys, come on, connect with us to, uh, through uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, those are our three main social media outlets. Check out our gear shop. We have lots of new cool stuff in there. And I want to let you know, because I'm moving, I'm doing a special on the MSB between now and Monday next week. 
The discount code is moving. You get your first year of the Member Support Brigade for $30. And existing members, listen up, existing members, you can renew uh, early. And so let's say you're, you're, your account was going to expire on June 1st. Uh, if you renew now, basically it'll expire on June 1st the next year, and you can get the special price. If you're an existing member, it's a little bit complicated. I'm not going to try to explain it on the air. I did a post yesterday called MSB Moving Sale. I'll link to it from today's show notes. Uh, but if you go there today, it'll be the second post on the blog, and it explains everything uh, on how existing members can participate. It's complicated, but I hate saying new members only. I feel like a cell phone company. The only reason I've ever done that in the past and not made offers like this available to existing members is because it is a complicated system limitation. But I do have a workaround, and because I'm moving and because I just had to sink a thousand bucks in the air conditioner repair uh, to get the house sold, I'm willing to do it. So um, great sale, one of the best we've ever had. And uh, anybody that wants to can participate, even those paying in silver. Um, you just get more months because it's hard to do a discount on an ounce of silver. Uh, anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, and let's take your first call. Again, if you'd like to be on a show like this in the future, the way you do that, you pick the phone up, you dial 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and uh, give us your message, and you'll hear yourself within a week or two. Let's go ahead and take that first call now. Hey, Jack, this is Kevin Goats on the forum, uh, better known as the guy who lectured you about... Uh, making a cleaner show but hey that's just a side note just my own irritation on that one hey episode 366 on uh the missing preps for uh major disasters man right on uh having gone through ike and rita both uh learned a lot about redundancy and you just can't talk enough about that and the fact that uh even though national guard and all that came in the fact of the matter is They really did nothing but lock everybody down and lock people out of the county. Um, we were outside the county for uh, 14 days after that. After uh, Rita came through, they stopped us at the bridges, wouldn't let everybody come through. And uh, what that did, unfortunately, is it turned everybody into kind of a vigilante whenever Ike came in because nobody wanted to leave them because they didn't want to be able to not come back in. So it was kind of a double-edged sword on that side of it. But, hey, Nonetheless, awesome. It was a great show, and you were dead on, bro. Bye. Well, uh, first of all, um, if you're the, per the person who lectured me on a cleaner show, uh, get in line. Uh, there's a lot of those out there, and you know the show is what it is. It's an adult show that some people choose to allow their children to listen to because my occasional use of a colloquial four-letter word is probably less damaging to children than a lot of things on mainstream television around 8 o'clock through most weeknights. So uh, anyway, we'll let that go. On your call, great call and great point, and it's one of the big misconceptions that I'm trying to make sure that people understand. When there's a disaster like this, And they send in a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of National Guard troops or what have you. Uh, you can bet there's a lot of food and water and things like that there. And it's, it, it's the most of it's there to support the soldier doing his job. Because when you send in a troop, you have to supply them with food and water and materials. And then there's a surplus that they maybe are handing out to people here and there. But in large part, what they're doing is they're keeping a lid on things. We've all seen what can happen in certain disasters like Katrina, where people decide, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get myself a big screen TV because by gosh I need that to survive and uh, what what 
structures and what infrastructure hasn't been damaged by the storm, the stuff that survives and gets through, what turns around and happens is, you know, the people go out and cause additional damage, and sometimes the looting after a disaster can be as damaging or more damaging than the disaster itself. So what that means is if you end up stuck behind the line, so to speak, in a disaster area, many times you're just going to have to take care of yourself, even after help arrives. And I, I think a lot of America is just not aware of this now. You know me, I'm not one of these conspiracy theorists, nut jobs that are going to tell you, that's because they're there to eliminate you, or, or whatever nonsense you hear through other channels about stuff like this. It's because it's their job, first, to keep order, and second, to provide relief. Because I can't provide relief if I don't maintain order. It's in, So if you look at places where we've gone and tried to provide relief with military forces and made that a priority over... Uh, maintaining order, it usually results in disaster. Okay, and that's that's just the way that it works out because when people are hungry and starving and, and they need stuff, a lot of times when people show up with stuff, the people that show up first to claim it want it all and want as much of it as possible. Uh, it doesn't happen everywhere. It's not like America's worse than other countries, but if you look at what's going on in Japan right now, it's amazing in the, the most hard-stricken areas where people show up, uh, the Japanese people that show up to get some relief supplies are taking only what they need. And I'm sure there are places in America where that would happen as well. But in a lot of places in America where it's happened before, it, the, the, the relief worker and the uh, relief troop are literally swamped. So what they're going to do first is exactly what the caller said here. They're going to move in and they're going to lock down. Once lockdown is affected and they've got everything under control, now they can begin an orderly distribution of what other, whatever relief supplies they can get. But even in the first days, it's, it's a matter of you can't help everybody if, if a lot of people didn't leave, if it's still heavily populated. You can't do anything. What you've got to do is deal with, you know, I have a small amount of relief supplies and a large amount of people that need it, and I've got to parcel it out. So in many of these situations, people end up, um, you know, going a week uh, or longer without any real relief. Then some bleeding heart news person gets them on the air, and they talk about how nobody's been helping them. They, they want to know where the help is. No one's come to help us. Uh, and they just, you know, and, and you understand the mentality. It's a person that's always believed that something like this happens, that someone would be there to help. And then they see kind of the peripheral of the troops moving in and the relief moving in, but they don't get anything. They try to come out and they're told to go in back in their homes. And they're thinking, this is ridiculous. I deserve to, I deserve help. And the reality is there's only so much help available. And that, that, that episode that the caller was talking about, that was the entire point. That a lot of these big disasters that we think of as so awful, the big thing that we've missed out of them is something like a Hurricane Katrina. We had a, actually a relatively small ground zero, if you want to call it that. We had a much larger area of, of people that were highly, highly affected, but getting to them and helping them was relatively easy to do within a few days. And then we had a massive area with, you know, some storm peripheral damage and stuff like that, but really life going on as normal. And then we had the whole rest of the United States that was totally unaffected. And all of those outer rings could be used as staging areas to get in and help the people that were in the ground zero area. Well, what if we have a much larger disaster than that? What if we have something that's national in scope and we don't have those rings of safety to set up staging areas in? How long would you have to go without help then? 
So great call. Thanks for kicking the show off with a great one there as far as making the show cleaner. I, th I think if I remember you, we had a conversation, and uh, once you learned of my disclaimer policy, uh, you basically said as I was. Anyway, let's go on and take another call. Hey there, Jack. This is uh, Spooky1 on the forum. I have a question concerning planting guava trees. Um, I found some good deals on some small guava trees. Now, I live in New Mexico, and they said the guava trees are zone 9 or 11. I'm just wondering, can I plant it in New Mexico? And even if I'm not in the zone, what if I put it in a greenhouse? How can I get that done? Thanks. Um, really easy one, Spooky. Um, no, it's not going to work outside. There's no place in New Mexico. I don't even have to know where you live in New Mexico. Knowing you live in New Mexico, I know there's no place there uh, that I know of anyway. Maybe I need to check the map, but uh, I don't think there is anything in New Mexico with a Zone 9 or higher. So the plant just can't survive the winters in New Mexico. The majority of the state of New Mexico, we're actually looking at uh, a zone of around 7 and even some parts of the state of 6. So the further north you live or the for further up into the mountains you live, the less likely you are to pull this off. With a greenhouse and doing container growing, yes, you could do this, absolutely. Um, you could definitely do that. And uh, you're probably, though, going to be in the colder areas, going to need some source of heat, uh, to get them through the winter. Uh, it's just something that uh, you got to understand when you have a greenhouse that eventually at night the temperatures on the inside and the outside normalize unless you have some other form of heat sink. Like if you have a lot of uh, black uh, containers full of water that are acting as heat sinks during the day and radiating that heat back out at night or if you're running a uh, rocket mass heater through the ground or there's a lot of different things you can do to provide heat. But if you don't do anything, eventually the two temperatures normalize. Now the plants are still protected to a large degree if they can handle the temperature because they're protected from frost, they're protected from wind and, and there's you know just that, that, that cocoon of safety around them. Uh, they also have higher CO2 levels, which help them cope better. Uh, but I'll tell you, it, what it really comes down to is you're trying to grow a tropical plant in a non-tropical area. So you're more likely to have to bring them, like put them on casters and bring them into the house to get this to work. Now, there is another option. There's another plant. It's not the same, but it's in the same kind of family genre called pineapple guava. Uh, those are hardy down into around 15 degrees, if I remember right. Uh, maybe even a, a little bit cooler, down to about 12 to 15 degrees, I think. Uh, they're available from Rain Tree Nursery and other places. That will probably work for you in much of the area of New Mexico with little to no protection. I know they used to actually grow them in the southern parts of England uh, at one time because I think one of Queen Victoria or somebody like that, it was her, one of her favorite things. So you might consider as an option... Um, pineapple guava instead of guava and I think that will work for you without protection in zone 8 in zone 7 if you get creative with the south facing hill surrounding the roots with a rock pile that you know that absorbs heat all day long in the winter uh, provide some sort of a windbreak off your main leeward wind you can probably stretch it into zone 7 and that means that you've got um, a, quite a large area in New Mexico you could do this. Uh, now if you're up at like Taos or something like that or Cloud, Cloudcroft or something way up in the mountains, you, you're trying to grow a plant that just I, I don't think is going to work. Now you're back to taking pineapple guava and having to do some of the things anyway that I recommended for guava. But 
I would look to pineapple guava regardless, since you're in New Mexico. I think that you're going to have a lot better options, a lot uh, better chance to get that thing to work for you. Again, it's amazing what we can do if we create microclimates, right? So again, south-facing, uh, you know, maybe not even if you're on flat land, maybe you don't even have a hill, but making sure that you have an open facing to the south, maybe creating a little bit of a hill rise, right? So maybe you create a mound, maybe a culture bed for your pineapple guavas, rock that in. And if you have primarily, let's say, a west-east wind, I don't know what you have, but just say you do, plant something as a natural screen to the west to create a windbreak for it and make sure it's getting hit with sun all day. And you can probably push at least one, and this is for anything that you do this with, you can probably push at least one zone lower than the plants recommended if you're kind of on the edge, right? If you go to the extreme where you're trying to push from zone 7 to zone 6, and you are zone 6, but you're like on the border of zone 6, zone 5, it, it gets a little hairy. But all you can do is try, and again, pineapple guava is what I'd recommend for you. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. My name is Bill. 54 years old. Bought my house 25 years ago. Paid it off 15 years ago. Um been debt-free for the last 15 years, car paid off, no credit card debt. My question is, reference uh, episode 391, uh, you make some statements about credit cards and how we feel about different financial issues and whether or not we should have credit cards. This brings me to the question. I hope I'm staying within time here. Anyway, I use credit cards on a regular basis. I maintain zero balance on every card. I pay it every month as I go. Do you think that that is supporting the system in a negative manner? Your input would be appreciated. I thank you much. Bye-bye. Let's take this question in three parts. Let's start out with the very first question, the very first part, which is the simple one. Are you supporting the system uh, in a negative way by using credit cards, even if you use them responsibly, using them the way that you do? You use them at the end of the month, you pay your balance, you never pay interest, you never pay, pay a surcharge, what have you. Well, <clears throat> this is personal. Um, it's up to you. Do you think credit cards do good, you know, credit cards as a, whole, as a whole and credit card companies as a whole and the banks behind them are doing good things for our economy or bad things for our economy? I think they're doing highly negative things for our economy. I really do. Uh, and I try to minimize my use of them altogether, even in the form of, of debit credit cards. Uh, there's certain things in today's world that it's really hard to do without. I mean, it just is. One of the big reasons I take PayPal, though, is because it gives people the option to use a way to pay me electronically and never touch a credit card. I mean, you could attach a PayPal account to a bank account and do a transfer of funds and never use a credit card, even a debit card with the Visa logo on it. I'm not saying I don't do that. But if you're using a traditional credit card, one thing you are doing is you're generating fees for credit card companies. You're not seeing them directly, but we as consumers are seeing them indirectly because the merchant has to pay a fee in, other, in order to take credit cards. Every time you buy something from somebody with a credit card, it, it costs the person that sold you uh, the, the item a little bit of money. That's where credit card rewards and stuff like that can come from. So they don't just make money by you carrying a balance and carrying interest. They make money by you using the card as a whole. So does it affect, you know, support the system in a negative way? 
If you don't want to support credit card companies, the answer is yes. You're not hurting them by what you're doing if you think you are. Second part of that, though, is is you, Bill, using your credit card to pay your bills and get some airline miles or something like that out of them or cash rebate or just doing it straight or whatever, is it really empowering the system for one person to do it? No. Come on, if, if Bill stops using his credit cards, Visa logos aren't going to crumble all over America. But if enough bills did, it could make a difference. Uh, so it, it's really more of a, of a personal choice thing on that. Now, the third part, why do I say I'm totally opposed to credit cards? Because most people will never do what you're doing, That because that's why. I mean, it's that simple because most people will say it and they might even do it for a while, but sooner or later, they're going to end up with a balance. My guess, Bill, I could be wrong, but my guess is you're a single guy. You're a single guy and you, you sound like you have a job in the, maybe the engineering field or uh, photography field or something that's very detail-oriented and you run your life in a very regimented manner and uh, maybe you are happy that way and that's fine and I'm not putting you down for that. I'm just saying you sound like an organized person to me, much more organized than I and the average American is. So if you have a system, the odds are you're going to follow it. And if that system is, at the end of the month, I pay this bill, you're going to do it. Well, introduce two children that are screaming and yelling and running around the house all the time. Introduce a wife uh, that, that just had, you know, maybe some kind of oral surgery and you didn't plan for that. And introduce, you know, PTA meetings and introduce all the things that most Americans deal with. And all of a sudden, the ability to stick to that system with something like a credit card becomes much more difficult. Um, so I just look at it this way. Um, I would tell you, if you said, Jack, I want to start keeping snakes, I would say, fine, that's a great hobby. I do it too. And I want to, and you said, but further, I want to start keeping venomous snakes. Then I would say that a venomous snake has to be treated with far different rules than a non-venomous snake. Uh, or even a very large constrictor, a very, and I mean, you know, a big, like a reticulated python or a, a Burmese python, something that if it gets out could, could kill a child and definitely if it gets out would be happy to eat your neighbor's chihuahua in about a millisecond. Um, or a venomous snake that if it bites you could kill you or send you to the hospital and cost tens of thousands of dollars in damage. That's the, the, that's the, the uh, category I place credit cards in. So it's not that no one can have them. But if you don't bring them into your home with the concept of, I have a deadly viper in my wallet, if you don't think that way, then you shouldn't do it. And I think the average person just shouldn't do it. I, I, I don't know what you think the big benefit is. You know, I, I've heard people say, well, I get 2.5% cash back rewards. And I'm like, well, I'll tell you what. If you converted your money to cash and spent only cash, you'd save more than 2.5%. I mean, it's just how I personally feel. I will never bash anybody because they've made this decision for themselves, but I'll never endorse it either. I think that's as open-minded as fair as I can be on it. But in a, in a way, yes, when you use a credit card, you're supporting the system in what I personally consider a negative way because you're helping the banks earn money by running credit. You know, Now, if you, if, if you don't think credit cards are bad, then that's not an issue for you. I happen to think that they're one of the, the one of the five primary forms of debt destroying America. Maybe one day we'll do a show on what those five primary means are. Uh, but if you guys want to take a guess, try it in the uh, comments section. Maybe I'll give something away to somebody that gets what the five primary means of debt destroying America are. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Lisa in Oklahoma. 
I was listening to one of your older podcasts, episode 617, and one of your callers had called in asking about what to do about um, human waste, how to dispose of it, and I just wanted to give her uh, an idea. Um, for one, she may want to get the Humanure Handbook and read that book. It's a really excellent guide on how to compost human waste and how to take care of that safely. Uh, but we actually use a sawdust toilet, and that's what we've been using for the last several months, and it works really well. Um, we just use a five-gallon bucket with a luggable loo lid that fits, snaps down on top of the bucket, and every time we go to the bathroom, we just take some sawdust and cover that up, and it takes absorbs liquid, takes care of the odor, um, haven't had any problems with it so far, and we have a compost bin where we take that and deposit it and cover it over with hay. There's no odor, no problems with flies or bugs or anything like that, so it's been a really good system. Uh, but just wanted to let her know about that. And uh, one thing I thought that some people might want to consider to have for in case of an emergency, um, so you have some sawdust on hand, is you can buy a cat litter called feline pine, and you can get it in large boxes that cost about $13, and it is a fine sawdust, uh, pine sawdust that you can use. We actually use it with our cat. It works great. There's no odor from the litter box or anything, so I don't know why you couldn't use it in a composting toilet as well. Um, but you want to be sure to get the sawdust type and not the pellets because it also comes with the pellets. So be sure to get the sawdust and not the other one. But I uh, just wanted to throw that out there and let her know that that was another option um, that she could consider for either long-term or uh, in case of emergency. Um, thanks for the podcast. Love the, a lot of the information that you put out there, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Well, first, the uh, Human Newer Handbook is something that's been recommended by a lot of people, but I've never actually checked out or uh, spent any time reading or anything like that. So I can only say that it's highly recommended by many members of the audience, but not necessarily highly recommended by me, not because I think anything negative about it or the concept of the process, simply because I haven't read it. And if I don't have a book on my bookshelf, I don't recommend it to the audience. So maybe it's one of those books that I'll add to a bookshelf sooner or later. Um, I do like what the caller's saying here, though. I mean, let me put it to you this way. I, I, I List a little humor for Friday. I think one of the things that separates human beings from the animals is we figured out how to get rid of our poo without flinging it at, at others, right? Um, so um, if you have the option of putting in a septic system, I think it's probably the best sustainable option that there is for dealing with human waste. I think that there's a lot of risks associated with human waste. I know that this, this book talks about how it can be done safely, and uh, but for day-to-day -day things, uh, I think the most sustainable thing is a septic system. That said, in the middle of a disaster, a septic system can fail, and in the middle of a disaster, the main sewage systems do fail. So having a way to deal with this is something I don't like to talk about a lot because, as I say, it's not good dinner conversation. It's not generally what a lot of people want to tune into the Survival Podcast to hear about dealing with your poop. All right, but you know we have to we have to say legitimately that it's one of the big concerns that we would have in an environment uh, after a major disaster or ma it's definitely a major national level disaster. So you know something as simple as sawdust in a bucket. I didn't know that would work so well, so I really appreciate the caller mentioning that. And again, the brand of cat litter that she recommends for our litter is uh, feline pine, but the sawdust version, and I, that would probably be better than a lot of other uh, uh, sawdust types because pine has that that nice pine aroma. And um, 
I'll tell you what, cats are, I, I love cats. We have two of them, and they're part of the family, but when it comes to an animal that produces waste that you don't want in your home, it's a cat. So if it keeps down a cat's odor, uh, it should do fairly well with uh, with the recommended application here. So it's something that I think maybe I'm going to do a little bit more investigation on, and, and I'm going to make that part of, uh, part of our press. What we have now is basically the same thing that she talked about with the lid and the five-gallon bucket, but what we've done is stored up extra uh, chemical product that we use for our RV, and that was recommended me, to me by Ron Hood, and I believe that would work very well. But the, the, the odor of that stuff, while not... A nasty sewer odor has its own odor I do not appreciate at all. It's better than the alternative, but if this has no odor, uh, in a disaster, especially a long-term one, it may be a better option. Uh, so we'll check into that. Maybe one day I'll get a copy of the Human Newer Handbook, but I'm just going to be honest with you. All of you guys out there. Not something I really spend a lot of my time thinking about. Uh, because most likely I have a septic system uh, at my bug out location, soon to be my homestead slash bug out location. Uh, with a septic system, I'm not susceptible to the same levels of risk that a person tied into the sewer grid is. If we didn't have a place to go like that, I think maybe I would be more concerned about this. So maybe I should talk about it more uh, for the benefit of the audience. I know there's actually people out there that are like experts in dealing with this subject. Maybe I'll bring one of them on the show as a guest because I do. I wanted to announce this kind of mid-show here. There's going to be a lot more guest appearances in the future. Um, going into next month, there'll be a new page on the site. There'll be a web form, and if you want to be a guest on the show, there'll be like a whole like a whole survey you'll fill out. And by the time you're done with that survey, I'll know how to introduce you. I'll be able to do a bio, what your website is if you have a website, why we're bringing you on the show. I'll know what you want to talk about very, very specifically. I'll have about three questions you said that I want to be asked these three questions. I'll build the interview out from there. It'll make the process very, very efficient. And those of you that keep recommending guests will be able to basically contact the, the, specific, the guest and say, hey, Jack's looking for guests. If you go have you or one of your people fill out this form, we, you can get up on his show. So... Uh, this would be another one of those topics. Since I'm not an expert in it, I'd like to bring an expert on the show about it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Adam from Boston. You know, this whole government shutdown thing, the reason it really annoys me is because it's not like this is a new concept. I mean, how many years ago was it where they threatened to do it and maybe they did do it? I don't remember. But the point is that if anybody's using half of their brain... They're realizing that this is a precedent that's been set before, and how long does it take to save money to support yourself for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? I mean, what drives me nuts about all of these people complaining about the government shutdown is that uh, they, they can't go from one day without a check. I mean, all you got to do in four, five, six years that we've, since this last time it's happened is just save a little bit of money. Just use half a brain, save a little bit of money, and over time you'd be prepared to deal with the government shutdown for a month. Anyway... Just want to throw that out to you. Um, let me know if you have any comments. Thanks. I think there's two sides to this, actually three. One is the troops, and somebody recently commented on the blog and got blasted pretty hard by another member of the audience, and then eventually by me because of their response to it. Because when I was asked about this and how it would affect the troops, I said, I said the troops should be paid. And, he, and the, 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 the person's objection was basically, I can't believe you were more worried about the warrior cast uh, getting their gold uh, then, then using it as an opportunity to say you should prep, just like this caller is doing here. 
And I thought you didn't listen to my entire response because if you did, there was a like toward the end of that where I said, I really wish the collective troops would have all gotten together and said, you guys are abusing the country. We're here to defend. Given a collective multi-million man middle finger and told the government to f off and shut down and they would do without. So, uh, but but here's the the other side I'm getting to because it affects the troops and it affects the low level employees. When you make even forty thousand a year for a household, which is not a lot of money for a household, you know, a mom, a dad, and a kid, that's very little money in reality. But at that level. Putting a little bit of money aside every month is something that's very, very doable. Inside the federal government are a whole bunch of useless drones that make seventy-five to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that have full benefits, and it's unbelievable how well they do. There are also people that make fourteen hundred dollars a month, and if you make fourteen hundred dollars a month and have a kid, even just one kid, just a single mom or a single dad with one kid. Saving a lot of money, even saving a little money, becomes very, very difficult. Honestly, almost impossible. And a lot of the people that would have been affected by this are those people, like you know, who makes fourteen hundred dollars a month. A private in the army makes fourteen hundred dollars a month. My reasoning behind the troops needing to be paid isn't isn't just because well they're the troops that are somehow different. No, it's because most of the government workers, if they had actually shut down the government, that weren't going to be paid, um, would have been told go home. Go home, go on about your life, and uh, when when we get back on, we'll bring you back in and we'll pay you again. Now, if some bureaucrat in D.C. has to wander around D.C. aimlessly for a couple of days while the government shut down because they don't know what to do with themselves because they don't have a desk to sit behind, I, I, it doesn't break my heart. And if you're making good money, you should have had some money saved up. You should be able to go a week or two. But when a private in the army making $1,400 that has a spouse back home that's dealing without him being there is still being shot at and not being paid, that I have a problem with. But overall, I think everybody, the troops, the $1,400 a month employee, the high-end employee, everybody needs to be doing everything they can to build up a reserve. I just think we need to be cautious when we talk about, well, we've had five years, or you could have done this, or you could have done that. You got to think back. Most of us, I would have to imagine, most of the audience that listens to this show had a time when you earned very, very little money. If you, maybe you're still there for some of you, but a, but a lot of you guys now that are making a, a reasonable wage, or maybe running a business of your own or something like that, had a time where, like me, you know, at one point I was packing boxes in a warehouse for five dollars and ninety cents an hour. Now, if you're renting an apartment, even with a roommate splitting the rent half. And uh, paying half of an electric bill and a phone bill and, and eating uh, and maybe having the occasional beer, there ain't a lot left when you're making five ninety an hour. Even back in nineteen, what would have been nineteen ninety three, right after I got out of the army and came to Texas. All right, so you got to think back to that time and go, how easy would it have been for me to save one hundred fifty dollars a month at that point? And the answer might be, it would have been all but impossible. Now, I always believe there's ways if you'll adapt and adjust. But we do have to have some understanding of the people that are in that life that have never known anything else. Their families never knew anything else. They come from a family that's always, you know, done menial labor, and it's very easy for me. And when I'm talking about business and making money, I'll say there's plenty of money out there. There's plenty of opportunity out there. All you have to do is first see it and then go get it, and you can have as much as you want. That's true. So when I'm speaking to someone that's open to that concept, that's how I'm going to put it. But to tell the person 
that works for the federal government sweeping up the Lincoln Memorial that makes maybe $9 an hour, uh, that they should be able to have enough money to go two or three weeks with the government shutdown, is a bit of a stretch. I think the bigger issue that I have with the government shutdown is they were arguing over $60 billion versus $38 billion. What they could have done was pass the freaking budget and left that piece for debate. Of course, neither side wanted to do that because then you give up a lot of your leverage. Um, I guess the Republicans would have done it because they would have got what they wanted that way. But there were certain things that could have just been done that everybody agreed on. We're not touching soldier salaries. Great, let's pass that. Uh, we're not touching this department. Fine, pass that. So they could have piecemealed some things through. I think the big thing that anybody that wants to look at this politically needs to really understand the people that were supposed to pass that budget, okay, the people that were supposed to do that job were the people that we fired in November last year. That was last year's budget. That budget was supposed to be passed in October, November of 2010. And because it was such a disaster, they punted forward, and then the new Congress that came in that said we're going to cut was saddled with it. And the reality, the money was mostly already allocated, and there was only so much the new guys could do. Now, I defended the Republicans. I don't like either side, as you guys know if you've listened long enough. But just a little bit of understanding there. But you're right. Uh, if anything, a potential government shutdown should show you that no matter where you're employed, no matter what you do for a living, your income is not safe. Your income can always just disappear, can just go away. Uh, there's been people that, you know, it, it worked for the city of Dallas forever that thought they could, you know, lay out in a lawn chair in the backyard and it, when they're supposed to work and they still wouldn't get fired, that they were that secure in their jobs. Well, all of a sudden the city has a shortfall of $60 million and some people's heads are on the chopping block. So no matter who you are, yes, you need to be prepared. Um, as far as why I didn't use it as an opportunity to talk about being prepared when the question about the troops came up, because the entire show is about being prepared. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Craig in West Virginia. Yesterday I was uh, in the doctor's office and was reading a popular science magazine from February of 2011 and saw an article about organic genetically modified foods and as I was reading the article I got called into the doctor's office so I wasn't able to read it but I was wondering if uh, you could find a little bit more information about that. It looked like it was a fairly small study uh, isolated to one area right now but that looks like uh, the future of genetically modified foods is now getting involved in organic food as well. So uh, if you could... Uh, Give me more information about that. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I can tell you what's going on is there's a big push um, by the uh, major agricultural producers like Monsanto, surprise, surprise if their name would come up, saying, hey, we can be organic too. Uh, organic, and I'm not saying this the way it is, this is what they're trying to say, right? Organic is about the process for how the food is handled. It's about growing food without using chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides. Well, hey, GMO lets you do that. Let's look at corn. Here's what we can do with corn. Uh, yeah, sure, some farmers are out there spraying their corn with atrazine to, uh, 
to keep back the weeds and using a genetically modified corn that can survive that. But you guys in the organic industry, you don't want to use atrazine, so there's no need for that. But, hey, you know those corn borers? Hey, well, we modified corn where the corn produces BT or bacillus thungosus, which is a naturally occurring bacteria that's not harmful to human beings, that if a corn borer eats it, it gets sick and dies. Well, you organic farmers have been using BT forever. It's organically approved. You guys take your corn, and right before the tassels start to form, you start spraying it with BT, and you keep doing that until the point where the corn begins to mature, and you control your corn bores with BT. And everybody agrees this is organic because it's a completely natural product. It's completely not harmful to human beings. And it's naturally occurring in the cornfields. You're just increasing the population of the bacteria to help control a pest. So why can't you use our corn that produces BT? I mean, sure, we took the genes from a fish and spliced it into the corn, But you're not using pesticides or herbicides or anything else. And think about this. Now you don't have to spray it with BT. The BT is in the corn. And since everybody already has accepted the use of BT, what's the problem? <laughs> That's the message. And what, what the, the GMO manufacturers are saying, if you give us a chance, organic community, We can come up with all kinds of nifty modifications. Instead of modifying stuff so it can be sprayed with herbicide, hell, eventually we'll model, modify stuff to where the plant creates its own herbicide. And it'll be a natural herbicide. It'll be a natural allopathic product that won't affect the person. It, 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 hey, it's science leading the way toward organics. Bullshit is what it is, but that's the message. Now, why are they doing this? Because if they can get, and, and the, the people they're going after are the big corporate giants in the organic industry. You know, such as Whole Foods. If they can start to get GMO product under the inside the organic label above the table, they don't even try to hide it. So all of a sudden, when you go buy organic corn chips, they they weren't sprayed with atrazine or, or, or you know Roundup or, or anything like that. Uh, it wasn't grown with high nitrogen fertilizer, but the corn was genetically modified to be pest resistant, and the organic label allows for that. Then they can turn to all of the people like us that are saying not to do this crap and say, what? It's organic. You guys are nuts. You guys are the fringe. And then the next thing you know, they have free reign and the last bit of resistance is squashed. So that's what's happening. GMO companies are now selling the concept that genetically modifying uh plants is the solution to making organics sustainable. I'd like to know how you feel about that today. Uh, whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, go to the survivalpodcast.com, pull up today's episode, click on comment, and comment in today's show notes. I want to know what you think about the concept that a company like Monsanto, who's done so much damage to the environment, is now trying to say, hey, look, organic community will create the organic product for you in a natural, genetically modified form by using a transmutational virus to take a, a gene from one organism like a fish and transplant it into another plant like a corn. What do you think about that? I think they're full of shit. Uh, I don't trust them in one, one way or another. And I think all that it eventually does, I think that like 
it's it's a classic make your enemy think he's your friend, bring him closer and kill him off is what I see going on here. Because what eventually happens is they get free reign and people stop worrying about GMOs and then the organic label becomes meaningless. And I think the organic label is already becoming meaningless. There's just nonsense within the organic community. First of all, I hate the term organic anyway. You know what organic means? It means carbon-based. So technically anything that's carbon-based is organic. Now we've taken that, we've made a brand, so to speak, out of it and said if you want to call your food organic, it has to fall under these parameters. I would like to see growers and producers of local food simply tell people, this is how our food's produced. All right, And then you decide if you think that's acceptable. Is your process 100% organic? No, I grow corn. It's a very hungry feeder. You want sweet corn as my customer. So I do use some nitrogen-based fertilizer, but I use a lot of compost. Here's my. This is a picture of what my field looks like. Right? I'm not raping and destroying the land. I'm just boosting the nitrogen a little bit at a certain part of the growing period, and I'm using as much organic fertilizer as I can. I don't think the farmer needs to do that, but if that farmer was honest about that, would I say I'll never eat your corn? Absolutely not. I'd be happy to eat his corn. Of all the crops in the world that you might need to take that approach with, corn makes sense for that. So I think it would be better if we just simply knew it was done with our food. And then we made a decision based on what was or wasn't done with our food. Now, how do you enforce that? To me, you let the market enforce it. You know, if the farmer says that's how he grows his stuff, fine. When somebody goes, you know, because it's not, I mean, one thing I think we've lost touch with, it's not 1900 anymore. If, if somebody's selling something and saying they're doing it a certain way, there's a million people out there with handy cams, you know. They can have something up on YouTube showing it's not what they're doing in 15 minutes especially at the small business layer. When we move up into the mega producer, uh, things are kind of off the table there. We need, we do need some regulation. Of, I mean, if we didn't have regulation at all of companies like Monsanto, the whole world would be GMO by now. Your kids would be freaking GMOs by now. Uh, but the small producer is not the threat, and yet the small producer is the one choked by the red tape and the big producers utilizing the red tape. And this, this move to push GMOs into organic... I think then the gloves come off with Monsanto, and they say, okay, here we go. Let's stop selling chemicals altogether. Let's bring in the Terminator gene so the seeds can't be saved, and let's solve every single problem in agriculture that's a pest or a weed with genetic modification. Let's call everything organic. And just like the movie, what was it, the, the superhero movie with the kids, the supers or whatever it was, uh, you know, the, the evil villain said, and when everybody's super... No one will be super, right? And when everything's organic, nothing will be organic if it's done that way. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chris in Wisconsin, or Jim Dunlop from the forums. I have a question and a comment. I went a little bit nuts with uh, putting maple leaves into my raised beds last fall, and I'm kind of concerned that there might be too high levels of acidity. Um, Number one, is that true? And number two, is there something I can do about it, such as putting um, ashes on top of it? I've kind of mixed the leaves into the soil. And my comment is, uh, thanks for your show. I really appreciate it, uh, especially the gardening has given my family a, a good focal point for a wholesome activity to do and allowed me to connect with friends and neighbors. Take care, and uh, thanks for helping us live a better life. Bye. 
Quick answer to that one, don't even worry about it. Maple leaves are one of the most neutral of all leaf uh, products. There's almost no acidity at all in a maple leaf. Rock on, you did good. You're going to increase your organic load in the uh, the bed. Um, you know, go on and plant. Don't even don't even sweat that one at all. You did a good thing. Let's take another call. Jack, hi, it's a uh, survivor on the forums. Uh, I was thinking about this idea for a rocket mass heater, and um, I want to build like an emergency shelter, kind of like a, a lean-to, uh, very simple, um, and cover it with like a tarp. But uh, so for a rocket mass heater, I had the idea that what if I basically buried regular stovepipe in the ground? So so my rocket mass heater was like an elbow that goes down, then it, and then I put it under several inches of dirt. And then it goes a, a couple feet, and then it goes up on another elbow, like 18 inches. Cover that with dirt, and then and then make stovepipe do a couple of like an S turn, couple uh, S you know an S turn through that pile of dirt that's like acts as your riser, and then goes back down again, and then out. Uh, it, it would be real simple because it would just you just bury the stovepipe on the ground. And your your riser would just be a bunch of dirt. So I, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'd, I'd, I'd see if you had any ideas on that or, you know, if there's any. Uh, you know, you'd probably have to cover it with a, a tarp when you weren't using it to prevent, the, you know, keep the water from getting uh, in the ground or something. But anyways, uh, thanks. Well, Survivor, I think you need to maybe take a little bit more of a look at the actual construction of a rocket mass heater because you're going to need to have some level of uh, maybe let's call it a brick element uh, to your system. So it's not just going to be building a fire in an elbow. But the way you're talking about running the pipes, absolutely no reason you can't do that. You do have to understand that somewhere in the system needs to be a, a secondary combustion chamber or a heat riser. So what I'm going to recommend that you do is that you watch some more videos on YouTube on Rocket Mass Heaters, especially on Paul Wheaton's channel. I'll see what I can dig up today. Now, as far as putting it, using basically what you're talking about is burying the pipes in the ground and using the ground itself is a thermal mass. Um, there is a video on YouTube on Paul Wheaton's channel where they're doing this for a greenhouse. They're basically going to put a raised bed inside a greenhouse and then have the rest of the greenhouse. They don't finish the greenhouse in the video, but they show how the heater's going to work. And it's basically the pipe runs through a trench in the ground, and the exhaust comes out the other side, outside of where the greenhouse structure is going to be. And then they pull the bed on top of there, and they plant their most tender plants directly into that bed. But that bed then radiates heat out into the entire greenhouse, even after the main fire goes out, and gets the greenhouse through the coldest winter nights. You can do that in a, in a structure as well. I know you got a yurt on your uh, your bug out location. You talked about doing this in a lean to. There's no reason this can't be done uh, in a variety of ways. You could even, I mean, so uh, I just think though, based on the way you're you're describing it, that maybe you need a little bit better of a fundamental understanding about the design concepts of how the t the, the heat chambers work, what creates the draw, and things like that. It's very difficult for me to explain on audio, but your overall plan is sound. If you run heat through a pipe in the ground and you put any type of cover over that, that piece of ground, as that ground radiates heat, the cover will help retain it, and it could be a really interesting emergency sh shelter. Um, but again, this would be something you could even eventually look at doing within your yurt. Uh, a lot of folks out there that are building small homes and all are doing rocket mass heating, and they're getting through even bitterly cold winters in bitterly cold parts of the United States with a, you know, a cord to two cords of wood. 
people in a little bit more mild climates, and I'm still talking pretty cold, right? I'm talking zone six uh, stuff that are getting through with a half a quart of wood through the winter because they're so dadgone efficient. So um, I'll try to find some videos for you to check out today. I'll add them to show notes for the audience as well to take a look at. But definitely look at the one with Paul doing the green, actually some guys that Paul are interviewing, doing the greenhouse with the buried rocket mass heater. It's really, even though it's for a different application, it's exactly what you're talking about, and I think it'll help you solidify your idea. Thanks for the call, man. Let's go ahead and take one more. Hey, Jack, this is Troy in Denton, Texas. When you were talking about changing economics and, you know, getting 95 cents on $100, or, you know, it reminded me of a, uh, a quote that I heard from Chris Martinson, uh, this is actually, uh, I had to go look it up. This is out of John Maynard Keynes' book, Wealth of Nations, in 1920. And that quote is, By a continuous process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and un- unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. The process engages all of the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does so in a manner that not one man in a million can diagnose. Anyway, that's what was straight out of John Maynard Keynes' book. Well, isn't that interesting? And it's definitely true. And I didn't know Keynes wrote that because the entire system that's being done today that is exactly that thing is being done in his name as Keynesian economics. And um, as well as I know the, the theory of Keynesian economics, which is the more you spend, the better, and uh, that you can control the markets through things like interest rates. I, I've never actually read the man's book. Maybe I should read Wealth of Nations. Um, but I, I want to make sure that people understand what was just said there. It's what I've been telling you all along. That if I have the ability to inflate the currency, I have an ability to devalue the currency. And when I, when I devalue the currency, the way I do that is by sucking value out of the existing currency. So if there's a million dollars in the market today and I add another million dollars, effectively the value of every dollar goes down by 50%. It drops straight in half. But if I'm taking the new money and I'm putting it into the hand of an elite financial management layer, I'm effectively giving them your wealth. It's a hidden tax. And every time I repeat the cycle, the money that you're holding in your bank account or under your mattress or in your 401k or anything denominated in the nation's currency, in our case U.S. dollars, anything, stocks, it doesn't matter what you're holding, I am devaluing it. I'm sucking value from your dollars and putting it higher back up in the system. So it's like a, like a continuous hourglass where the sand keeps falling, and guess who's at the bottom of the, the, the hourglass? You are and I am. And these are the things that we need to be aware of because this is the system that we're currently living in. I'm going to cut it short because the painter guy who's supposed to be done today just showed up and I know he's about to knock on the door and the dogs are going to go ape. So I'm going to cut the show off early today. But do remember, I have that MSB special going. You can find details in today's show notes or one post back in the blog. You'll see the full details of that. $30 for your first year of the MSB. Help me get this move accomplished. Uh, if you've been on the fence about the MSB, let's go ahead and join and get that deal. Runs through Monday next week. The code is moving and existing members can participate. Send it to the site to see how to do that. And with that, this has been 
than Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Remember, if you'd like to be on a Friday show like that, uh, like this, just dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. We'll try to get you on within a week or two. Lots of very cool stuff coming. Making the move to the office next week. We'll probably even be doing streaming video on Ustream once in a while once it happens. Guests coming. This show is fixing to make another big leap forward. Thank you to all of you who have helped make that happen. I hope you have a great weekend and a great Friday. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares.